0: listener production Jess Hill is an investigative journalist who has dedicated the last 6 years of her life to exploring, explaining, and making sense of family violence, domestic abuse, and sexual assault. This week she returns to SBS Television with a documentary series called Asking for It, featuring Grace Tane, Saxon Mullins, and other survivors and experts who candidly share their experiences. Jess is unflinching and unfailing in her commitment to moving Australia forwards on its understanding of consent. She's also managing to do this enormous and significant work while receiving treatment for a brain tumour, an experience that I unfortunately know a little bit about. My name is Jamila Risby, and welcome to The Weekend Briefing. Up next, Helen Smith and I bring you The Weekend List, where we recommend what to watch, see, do, eat and listen... To this weekend. <laughs> but first, here is my conversation with Jess Hill. Jess Hill, welcome to the weekend briefing. Thanks for having me, Jam. I am so thrilled to have you here because. We have you in an action-packed week for you because your new documentary series, Asking For It, has just been released and I know you're coming to us fresh off the experience of watching it for the first time on the big screen and in a theatre. Can you tell me what that was like?
1: Yeah, so we launched it in Paddington on, um, in Sydney on Monday night and Everyone, I mean, a lot of people in the series were actually in the cinema, and so that in the first episode is a yeah pretty heavy hitting episode. We we meet um, Saxon Mullins, who many people will know already, and and we start to hear her story. She is absolutely central to the story of of consent and our movement towards enthusiastic consent. And then we meet Grace Tame, obviously very well known, um, to talk about how consent can be manufactured. We also meet Lauren French, um, who's the Head of Education at Body Safety Australia, who is just amazing um, as a teacher and as an interlocutor on consent. And Noelle Martin, who Experienced, I think what's for many just a living nightmare of having her image deep faked um, and basically put onto like innumerable porn sites and sitting there. So I was sitting in the front row with Lauren and with Saxon. Grace was behind us. Um, Gemma, we also meet in that first episode who people won't know who was sexually assaulted by a close friend of hers who then went on to just trash her reputation to all their friends she was a few rows back. It was so profound. I almost couldn't sit still. I I just, I almost didn't know how to be in that space. Um, It was just so incredible to be sitting there with the people that were on screen telling not only the most, one of the most, you know, some of the most traumatic events of their life, but doing it with like such precise articulation and such insight. Um, but yeah, I mean, I just thought to myself, like, if we'd done this 10 years ago, people wouldn't know what to do with this series, um, and certainly not this episode, um, because we weren't really ready. You know, we've had over the last few years, particularly since, I mean, since the Me Too movement, you know, people have heard disclosures, um, over and over and over from, from their friends, from people on television, from, you know, from every corner. And it's like our ears have been educated on how to listen. And so that's a night that I could not have imagined having 10 years ago, and even still
0: feels historic. This is, of course, not the first piece of work you've made in the space of sexual assault and domestic abuse. You wrote a book called See What You Made Me Do that also became a documentary series. You've made The Track, a podcast series, and now asking for it. You've just reflected on the change that you've seen over that time, but it's been a concentrated period of time, right? We're talking about sort of five or six years where we've really seen a shift in the way our community thinks about and talks about women's safety. I want to ask, have you noticed those conversations changing about women's safety in your everyday life and in the media and the community as well?
1: Oh, 100%. I mean, yes, I've seen that with family violence. Obviously, that's been my key focus. Um, And I've done a bit of speaking internationally on issues of family violence and sexual violence, and it's really striking how the, the difference in the baseline understanding that exists among audiences that I've spoken to internationally. There's almost a shorthand in Australia now because people have been like exposed for so long and at reasonably high concentration to so many advocates. And, of course, like there are big names, you know, that everybody knows like Grace Tame, like Brittany Higgins, um, you know, like Saxon Mullins. And then there are also all of the other names that have like, you know, come along, all the other people who've come along to put their bricks in that wall the media, I think, has improved hugely in how it reports it. Now I don't it's not across the board, and obviously when there's a homicide or where there's a you know, sort of a big um, news item, sometimes they don't do so well. But in telling the like the longer stories of victim survivors, there's been a real shift to kind of letting the victim survivor tell what they think is most important to them and framing the stories in in the ways that are most important to them. So it's not so much like let's put the most horrifying thing right up front. It's more like let's see how this played out and the various ways in which it impacted this person Um, and not just the act itself but everything that might have come afterwards, including the criminal justice system, um, including sexual violence, you know, response services. So there's a baseline education in Australia that is I think, actually quite unique in terms of its reach. And that's, I think, incredible. I mean, it's partly due to the fact that we're a reasonably small country population wise. And so these people can have a huge impact um, and be sort of known by most people and have their stories, you know, known by most people because we've got this sort of concentrated media.
0: I was reading a piece by you for Women's Agenda where you spoke about the fact that this is certainly not the first consciousness-raising moment in the space of sexual harassment and violence. But Me Too and what has happened subsequently hasn't just been a conversation between women as it has sometimes been in the past. This has been a conversation very much aimed at people of all genders and it has brought men into the spotlight and forced them to sit up and take notice. What do you think can flow from that in terms of making change over the coming years? What is possible now that perhaps wasn't possible before?
1: Yeah, so, I mean, Me Too made men sit up and take notice because women weren't just saying, oh, I have been raped or I've been assaulted. It was like, I have been raped or assaulted and he was the one who did it to me and I'm going to name him. Um, and that was totally different from previous consciousness-raising movements. And I think that, you know, over the last few years we've had pretty volcanic anger from people who uh, have been sitting on on these experiences, sometimes for their entire lives, um, from people who've only recently been assaulted and just cannot believe that this is still happening, you know, in this day and age, um, but and also just at the sheer volume of particularly sexual violence, but I you mean know, also family violence and and the gigantic impact it has on victim survivors and the ways in which perpetrators seem to get away with it so often and i mean you know convictions aren't the be all and end all of accountability but when you look at fewer than 1% of rapes ending in conviction there's not a lot of other ways that we actually do provide accountability in this country so that means that you know almost every rapist is getting away with it as lawyer michael bradley says in the series so we've had this anger about all of this and a lot of the message has been men you need to sit down and shut up because women need to talk you know and you need to listen which has been absolutely appropriate um and i think there's been a lot of talking and and some listening not from everyone um but certainly some listening And I think where we're at now is a really crucial juncture, and I've started to feel this last year and and was chatting to some men who work in this sector, particularly with boys and men, about like, okay, but where do we go now? Because we've had this anger, we've had marches in the streets, um, we've had appeals to politicians, but we can't do it without boys and men, so how are we going to bring boys and men in? And in the meantime, what we've actually had is a backlash, which is unavoidable, I think, in in these that we see repeatedly. But we've had figures like Andrew Tate, Jordan Peterson and others trading on appealing to boys and men through mental health, but actually sort of bringing in the back door this like truly anti-feminist and misogynistic narrative about men's natural right to control and sexual domination. And I think a lot of boys and men are either seduced by that or horrified by it, but feel themselves trapped in the middle, like where the feminist movement sort of doesn't really want them. They kind of can't say anything right or, or they shouldn't say anything at all. And then this movement over here seems kind of a bit over the top, but they're saying, come on in. Like, we want you. You're great. You're not toxic. You're not a potential and they're full of shit. So from here, the next few years have got to be a delicate coming together, I'm not suggesting that that's easy, (laughs) Um, but if we have boys feeling alienated, that's not going to make them want to come along on this consent train, you know. It's going to make them, you know, some just double down and resist.
0: How does the feminist movement do that? How does the movement work in a way where we're not eating ourselves alive? Uh, Let me be clear. This is a space where a lot of people feel uncomfortable praising men for simply doing the right thing, for simply doing what should be expected as fellow human beings. And I think a lot of feminists worry that we don't want to be in a position of valorizing or glamorizing the bare minimum that should be expected. How do you bring men and boys into the conversation and entice them into the conversation and make them feel part of the solution without celebrating behavior that really should just be what's expected of them in the first place?
1: Yeah, I don't think you need to do that at all, to be honest. Um, I don't think you need to valorise um, boys and men. I think that more, more to the point is we need to acknowledge the difficulties they have, um, particularly young teenage guys, with sex and the pressure that they feel um, to perform and the sorts of pressure that, you know, porn consumption puts on them. Um, I think we need to pay heed to well, what's so attractive to them about people like Jordan Peterson and Andrew Tate. What's the attraction? And the attraction is um, validation, you know, validating that this is really tricky, you know, for, let's like, I mean, let's like leave people aside who are like intentionally preying on people um, and preying on women, but talking about you just gun variety teenage guy who, you know, feels a lot of pressure to lose virginity um, sort of as quickly as possible, um, feels pressure to sort of be, to show that they're in control, all the things that we know. And this is why feminism is for Men and women, um, <laughs> all the things that feminism has said, like, this is all the pressure that um, the gender pressure that, you know, that men are under too. Um, you know, it's what we call patriarchy. Like, this is the code that everyone's living under and the yoke that people are living under. And one of the advocates in the series, Richie Hardcore, it's a hilarious name. Um, he is not a porn actor, um, he's a Muay Thai fighter and, you know, someone who's been really. Active. I mean, it is a name. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It's like, you know, um, so but he's he speaks to boys at high school and he does both. You know, he talks about like what's it like to be consuming porn that's like laying out for you this this format of sex, which basically says, you know, in order to be like kind of edgy and the guy, you kind of got to be like not only in control. And by the way, a totally disembodied erect penis, basically, Um <laughs> But you should be, you know, using a bit of um, violence. I mean, like, you know, so much porn features choking and slapping as just a regular thing to do. You don't have to be Sherlock Holmes to draw the line between the mainstream, you know, now use of choking and and other types of things like this and anal sex at a very early age and what's been normalised on porn. So he talks to them about that and, and gets them to talk about their... What their discomfort is, but also gets them to talk about, like, what kind of pressure do you think girls are under? He comes in
0: being interested in what they have to say. It's a conversation, not a lecture.
1: Exactly, and that's what one of the boys in the third episode, who's like, I think he's like school captain, he's got ribbons everywhere, and he's actually like a total ally. Um, You know, he said, we've had quite a few speakers come to the school because obviously this is a big subject and you're the first one who hasn't spoken down to us as boys. And for me, that was just like red alert. You know, like if we're doing all this work, and then boys feel like they're being talked down to, not because they're a bunch of entitled twits, but just because they're not being sort of engaged. Um, that's that's a problem, you know, and that's a problem we've got to fix. And yeah, it, they don't need cookies, and I don't think a lot of these younger guys are looking for cookies. They're actually just looking for someone to understand that they're confused as well, and they're a bit scared, and and they don't, and they're really at. They're at the vanguard of this whole new understanding of how to have sex and they're having their first sexual experiences in amongst this conversation, you know, liberating in the best way where we see Gen Z more and more saying, actually, I don't want to do that and I'm going to wait to have sex with someone that I want to have sex with and I'm not just going to say yes because it's cool to say yes to being choked or, you know, um, you're actually seeing better boundaries put up than what our gen, generation, why, um, were able to do. And I think if we just start to acknowledge that and invite them in, that's, that's all I'm advocating for. No cookies, just invitations.
0: Jess, you've been working in this space for a while and very intensely. How do you protect yourself It's an odd question to ask. Uh, You're a journalist, you're working with people who have experienced very serious trauma and they're the ones who need support from you as you're going about your journalism. But there is also a vicarious trauma that happens. How do you hold caring for the people you're talking about on the one hand and maintaining enough distance to protect yourself on the other?
1: Well, I've never done that very well um, and much to my own detriment. And in fact, I probably wasn't until last year when I had a seizure and then I, you know, had a recurrence of this brain tumor that I'd first had 10 years ago, that I actually had no choice but to look after myself. And I felt like this is not just an elective anymore. Um, (laughs) This is you deciding whether you want to see your five-year-old grow up, especially when you have, you know, cancer in the brain, as you well understand. It's that feeling of like, everything feels really relevant and this may be for people who have other types of cancers too but it feels even more that you have to be careful of like things like stress and things like you know massive like overloads of cortisol and because we don't know what causes brain tumors we don't know why they recur but i think it's it's a fair bet that like the more even you are in your life, and the the better cared for you are, the better chance you have of keeping things stable. And so for me, it was like, knock knock, uh, you need to stop now. Um, you need to stop taking responsibility for everyone's well being because there's a lot. What people don't see behind the scenes is um, both the responsibility that you carry as someone who is presenting these stories and the ongoing interactions you have, which are actually amazing and i've become close with so many of the victim survivors and sector workers that have worked with over the last few years and have an incredible friendship group and network now but you know but it's a um it's a very heavy traumatic space and there's a lot that goes on in it. And then there's also politics, you know, in the background as well, which is hard to navigate. Now I make, you know, choices and I and I don't sit and and agonise over things and, and feel like everything is 100% my responsibility, um, that people are going to have... Certain reactions, and that can't be helped. And I'll do my best to make sure that everyone feels validated and safe. But in the end, I can't determine how people feel or, or what people are going through. I can't stop people from, you know, trolling them online. I can't be God, um, and so that realization is helpful. Um, good one to have. Yeah, it's a good one to have. I think anyone working in this space, though, is it's very difficult. To have that distance and what people might call objectivity, I go for fairness. I'm not an objective bystander uh, by any means. Um, I'm, I'm very much a participant, um, but I go for fairness. That's that's my sort of yardstick.
0: You mentioned that you've been seriously unwell, and you and I have that in common. Always, always a fun thing to have in common uh, is a brain tumor. Don't recommend joining our club if you can possibly help it. Everyone. <laughs> yes, <laughs> At- but I think, Jess, one of the realities of, of being sick when you're, when you're young is it does tend to put the world into rather harsh focus and it means you have to be really deliberate with your time and your energy and where you choose to put it and who you choose to devote it to. So for you, in terms of thinking about what your work will look like going forward, is this work you'll keep doing?
1: Yeah, it is, but I'm changing the way I stay. I think. Um, and part of that is recognizing that I can't keep marinating in, um, in just the trauma of it. Um, and so a lot of it is sort of, I mean, it has been also, you know, very solutions focused and, and, um, trying to find the way through. And I think more and more, I'm, I'm sort of pulling the lens back to like, how, and why is this all happening? Why are we still here? Um, in terms of fighting for women's rights, but fighting for the rights not to be sexually violated and coercively controlled. Um, And so in pulling back that lens, I'm really looking much more at the broader cultural um, issues and and power generally. Um, and, And I guess... What's beautiful about this series and quite unexpected, and and this is very much to do with, I mean, not just Saxon but very much Saxon's energy and what she brings to this movement and others, is that in, in the consent conversation, at the core of it is the world that we're trying to create or the world that we're trying to move to, which is one that is, based on mutuality, on connection, on respect, on satisfaction, on pleasure, and love. Not love in the necessarily in the monogamous sense, but love in terms of loving, you know, one's neighbor, loving the person who's in front of you from that human perspective, um, enough to respect what they want and to maybe cop on the chin a bit of rejection at a time that might feel a bit uncomfortable for you, you know. Yeah. This series, for me, even though it is like, you know, the first episode particularly is pretty heavy, um, really by the time we get to episode three, you know, like I'm covered in glitter. and, um, And so it's like there's a real progression towards this, like what does it look like when we establish these boundaries, but we establish mutuality and the expectation of pleasure and mutual satisfaction. And what it looks like is incredible, you know, and it's not moralistic and it's not prudish and it's not about modesty culture. It's actually about true permission given, informed in an informed way and in a way that is 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 rolling and i think richie harcourt puts it so well when he says you know what we need to develop is the language for enthusiastic retractable consent but when you're talking about consent already you're talking about you in in that in that term is the plus side and what happens when consent is properly negotiated which is you know better sex better relationships better society you know, so I've actually found, um, you know, in the last week doing um, interviews for the series that it's, it's been really uplifting and I've come out, you know, even towards the end, you know, we're like kind of laughing about it and, it and it's come out feeling like this is good what we're working towards, you know, and it's coming out of hellish experiences but it is moving towards something good. That's what we're, that's what we're fighting for.
0: Jess, thank you so much for being my guest on The Weekend Briefing. Thanks, Jam. That's it for my conversation with the incredible Jess Hill. You can catch her new documentary series, Asking For It, on SBS On Demand now. Don't go away. The Weekend List is coming up next. It is weekend list time. We have got you sorted for the whole weekend with a whole bunch of stuff to do. And Helen Smith has been watching all the things ready to
2: recommend for you this weekend. Helen, what have you got? From your chat this week with Jess Hill, I went to the screening on Monday night and I watched the first episode and I cannot recommend it enough. It was such a great intro to the series and I can't wait for the rest of the episodes I went with another producer and we just left feeling so many things and it was just so amazing to be in that room as Jess said with all of the people involved and I can't wait for the rest of the series it's definitely a must must watch
0: My experience with everything Jess Hill makes is that it is both impeccable quality and totally captivating. So that absolutely lines up for me. I want to use another Jess Hill segue, folks. Uh, It's been a few years now. In 2020, Jess Hill won the Stella Prize for her book, See What You Made Me Do. And the Stella Prize shortlist for 2023 has been announced. The winner is coming up next week. But I recommend you go check out the whole short list It's six books by six very much diverse authors. There is poetry, there are novels, there is nonfiction. Uh, I want to particularly recommend The Jaguar by Sarah Holland-Bat, which I really enjoyed, and The Big Female Theory by Eloise Grills, which I also loved. Folks, there are four other books. I just haven't got to them yet, but I will. I always read my way through the Stella Prize shortlist because they are just some incredible pieces of work and Stella Prize judges do a really good job of finding the best of the best from the last year of books that have been published by women and gender diverse people. So really recommend you check that out.
2: Yeah, my second recommendation is, as you said, another watching. I am watching I'm a Celebrity Get Me Out of Here. It's definitely my guilty pleasure. (laughs) Yeah, it's so good. I always, I love the show. I watch it all the every time. But this uh, season, I'm loving watching Liz Ellis, the former Diamonds captain. She's just so much fun and she's great. And she's actually supporting Share the Dignity, which is a charity I love. I've been volunteering with them for a couple of years now. And it was just so great to see her talking about such an awesome charity. And that's another thing I love about the show. It's not only fun, but there's so many great charities that they're involving.
0: I am a massive Liz Ellis fan. She does a whole lot of speaking now that she's retired and she's just so great. If you ever get a chance to see her on stage, folks, make sure that you do. And my final recommendation for this weekend is that you get organised, folks, for Vivid Sydney. I love this event every year. The lights, the atmosphere, the food, but most of all the talks and ideas and headlining Vivid Sydney in June of 2023 are Mike White and Jennifer Coolidge in conversation with Benjamin Law. If those names sound familiar and exciting, but you can't quite remember who they are, Mike White is an award-winning writer, director, actor, producer, but most importantly for this circumstance, he created the White Lotus and he will be on stage with Jennifer Coolidge, who is of course a Golden Globe, Emmys, Critic Choice, SAG Awards winning actor And she was in the White Lotus, rather famously. They'll be chatting with Australia's own Benjamin Law. And seriously, sell your firstborn children to get there, folks. This is going to be one hell of a conversation. That's it for the Weekend Briefing for another week. Thank you so much for giving us your company. We so appreciate it. If you want to make sure you never miss an episode of the Weekend Briefing or indeed the Briefing podcast, the best thing to do is to follow us on the listener app you can download that in the app store we would love to have your ears along for the ride with us every week you can also follow or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts we'll be back bright and early on monday morning where tom tilly and the team will have the latest headlines straight to your headphones listener